0: Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat, Winston, joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. We've reached the end of Season 3, which means Winston and I will be taking a short break to prepare for Season 4. But don't worry, we'll be back on December 1st with a brand new season of cases, including a special collaboration episode with a fellow Pacific Northwest podcast, so stay tuned for that. Even though we're taking a break from our main episodes, we're still going to be covering the trial in Manny Ellis' death. Our coverage of this case will likely take us through the end of 2023. One last thing before we get into today's episode. We're just 10 Apple reviews away from our goal of 100. When we hit 100 Apple reviews, we'll be doing a giveaway. So if you haven't already, please go leave us a review. And don't forget, we'll also send you some stickers as a thank you. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's get into today's episode. I struggled with some writer's block and indecision about what to cover for this episode. So I asked my husband what kinds of cases he wanted to hear, and he chose unsolved. So I went in search of an unsolved case and actually found two to share. The two cases I'll be covering today are the only unsolved murder cases in Port Orchard, Washington. Port Orchard is located 13 miles from West Seattle with a population of almost 16,000. Port Orchard is connected to Seattle and Bashan Island via Washington ferries and it was named after the strait separating Bainbridge Island from the Kitsap Peninsula. The city is a popular tourist destination as it's a quote-unquote pleasant waterfront community. Because of the tight-knit small community feel of the city, the deaths I'm going to cover truly shocked the community and have left long-lasting impacts on the city and its residents. James Smith, a.k.a. Jimmy, was a friendly but kind of quiet man who graduated from South Kitsap High School in 1950. After high school, Jimmy became actively involved in local youth programs, including becoming the coach of the Sheriff's Babe Ruth League Baseball team. Jimmy was also a bowler and eventually got a job as a custodian at High Joy Bowl. Prior to the events we're going to discuss, Jimmy worked at the bowling alley for five years. Jimmy seemed to be well-liked in the Port Orchard community, and those who were interviewed said that Jimmy was the kind of person who'd help anyone. On August 15, 1961, Jimmy's shift at Highjoy started around 4 a.m. Just a few hours later, at 8 a.m., a fellow employee entered the bowling alley and found Jimmy laying on his back on the floor near the register counter. Jimmy had two deep, sharp cuts to his head, and he was lying in a pool of blood clearly deceased. Whoever killed Jimmy wiped their hands and the bloody weapon on Jimmy's sweatshirt. Police responded to the scene at 8.15 a.m. They found a crescent wrench, which they speculated was used to break a back window to gain entry into the bowling alley. The safe at the bowling alley was still closed and nothing appeared to be missing from the bowling alley. $270 in cash which is nearly $2,800 today, was still in the register and Jimmy's wallet was found in his back pocket. But despite all signs pointing to Jimmy's murder not being the result of a robbery, the police chief at the time, Gail Dow, believed that Jimmy surprised a burglar who ultimately decided to kill Jimmy. This opinion was mostly based on the fact that there were three other small burglaries at a nearby real estate firm, an accountant's office, and a lumber yard all of which happened on the same night that Jimmy was murdered. Investigators believed the murder weapon was either a hatchet or an axe. The murder weapon wasn't found at the scene, and investigators canvassed the nearby area in an attempt to locate it. They even drained a pond behind the bowling alley, but their efforts didn't uncover anything. The only evidence found at the scene was a quote-unquote cheap watch with a broken band investigators thought this might have been evidence of a struggle. Sadly, Jimmy's case went cold fairly quickly. Despite this, Jimmy's death still affected the tight-knit community and no one had forgotten about him in the years that followed. Like many jobs, there was turnover in police chiefs in Port Orchard. Like I mentioned earlier, Gail Dow was the chief of police when Jimmy died. Dow became the chief in March of 1959 and he left the force in 1976. Dow was the one who came up with the theory that Jimmy's killer was likely a transient rather than a local. His theory essentially led the investigation to go nowhere, and subordinate officers would later say that Dow didn't follow police procedure in Jimmy's case, which was out of the norm for him. All of the evidence in Jimmy's case was stored in Dow's personal filing cabinet. Yes, you heard that right evidence from a murder investigation wasn't kept in an evidence locker. It was kept where only the police chief would have access to it. And when Dow left the force in 1976, all of the evidence in Jimmy's case went with him. So I'm sure you all won't be surprised when I tell you that Chief Dow eventually landed himself on the suspect list. He was frequently seen with Jimmy at the restaurant in the bowling alley, and some people in the community believed that Jimmy, quote, must have known something that could have ruined Dow's career, end quote. In 1985, Dow was convicted of statutory rape and indecent liberties, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He also became a registered sex offender as a result of this conviction. Dow died in 1997. Dow's second wife strongly suspected Dow of committing the murder and claims that he was out the whole night on the night Jimmy died. She also claims that Dow returned home, quote, disheveled with blood on his uniform, end quote. As far as I could tell from the very limited information about this case, Dow's wife's claims don't appear to have been substantiated. Newer investigators who took over the case believe that Jimmy's killer was local and still living in the area. They speculated that Jimmy probably knew his killer based on their belief that Jimmy's murder was deliberate and premeditated. No real motive has ever been offered or uncovered in Jimmy's murder, and the murder weapon has never been found. Although there are rumors and suspicions surrounding ex-police chief Dow's involvement in Jimmy's murder, I didn't see anything stating that he was officially a person of interest or a suspect in the murder. The likelihood of Jimmy's murder ever being solved dwindles more and more with each passing year. All of the evidence Dow had is gone, and so is he. Other witnesses have since died, and investigators don't have any leads to go on. Investigators have publicly stated that they likely won't ever fully reopen the case because they, quote, don't want to expend the resources, end quote. If you or someone you know has any information on Jimmy's case, please contact the Port Orchard Police Department at 360-876-1700. Looking for a podcast that's a little lighter but still involves cats? Well, then Winston and I have a recommendation for you. Crazy Cat Mom is a podcast hosted by fellow cat mom, Rain. Rain offers advice to other cat parents, shares useful cat tips, and tells stories about her own adorable cat, Kevin. Tune in every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern for a perfectly good show. We'll also include a link to Crazy Cat Mom in our show notes. We're going to end today's episode with the only other unsolved case in Port Orchard the murder of Linda Malcolm. 47-year-old Linda Malcolm was born on January 21, 1961, and she was raised in Springfield, Illinois, one of nine kids. She had five sisters and three brothers. Linda joined the Navy in 1984 and was stationed in Kitsap County, Washington, where she ended up staying after she was honorably discharged in 1993. Linda started working as a paralegal after she left the Navy, working for three different law firms, including the Kitsap County Prosecutor's Office. Linda enjoyed cooking, spending time with her friends, playing cards, and singing karaoke. She was well-known in her neighborhood and at her local hangouts. Linda was described as outgoing and social with a lot of friends in the community. She had several serious relationships over the years, but none of them ever led to marriage. Unfortunately, because Linda was so well-known in the community, most people knew where Linda lived and that she lived alone. At the time of her death, Linda was technically unemployed, but she was getting ready to move to a new apartment and start a new job in Belfair at the Social Security Administration. The move was supposed to happen on May 1st, 2008, because the house that Linda was renting was actually going to be torn down on May 15th. But sadly, Linda died the day before the move. At 3.58 a.m. on April 30, 2008, a call came in to 911. One of Linda's neighbors had called to report that Linda's home was completely engulfed in flames. Before the fire department arrived, two of Linda's neighbors tried to get into Linda's house because they thought she was potentially inside the burning house. Unfortunately, neither of them could get inside the house because of all the flames. First responders got to Linda's house at 4.21 a.m. and the fire was put out by 5.03 a.m. Once the fire was put out, investigators found Linda's charred body in the master bedroom. An autopsy was performed the day after the murder. The coroner described the murder as quote-unquote brutal overkill. Linda had been stabbed up to 18 times and any one of those stab wounds could have been fatal. Based on the low carboxyhemoglobin level in Linda's blood, the coroner determined that Linda was dead before the fire started. He placed the time of death sometime between 2.20 p.m. on April 29th and 3.50 a.m. on April 30th. Investigators determined that the fire started in the front of the home, in either the living room or the kitchen. Linda's bedroom was at the back of the house, and police believed that the fire was set intentionally to cover up the murder. As part of their investigation, police started diving into Linda's life. In the days leading up to the murder, Linda made plans to move all of her stuff from her rental home into her new apartment. She'd even asked some of her friends to help her pack and help her with the actual move. Strangely, the day before she died, Linda sent an email to her sisters saying that she found a new job in Bremerton. This isn't the same town as Belfair. In fact, they're about 19 minutes away from each other, and both cities were less than 20 minutes from Port Orchard. So, I'm not really sure what to make of this email. It's possible that Linda got the two cities mixed up, or that she meant Bremerton all along because it's a much bigger city than Belfair. Either way, it was something investigators took note of. A few years before the murder in 2005, Linda was arrested on drug charges, This led to her being fired from the prosecutor's office. These charges were dropped three months later because of warrant issues. Linda's last known purchase on her debit card was at Safeway for $116.52 on April 29th at 2.16pm. This couldn't be confirmed, but it's possible that Linda spoke to one of her friends on the night she was murdered. Linda was also dating online at the time of her death, so investigators explored that lead too. There was no evidence of forced entry into Linda's home, and police don't believe that the crime was random. A year after the murder in 2009, police said they had a person of interest in Linda's case. That person of interest has never been publicly identified by police. Also in 2009, police searched the home of Linda's boyfriend. He died in September of that year, but police got a search warrant for his home in Gig Harbor to, quote, look for evidence or any information that may further his involvement in the crime or eliminate him as a suspect, end quote. This boyfriend had been interviewed by police before, but he refused to take a polygraph. Investigators said this man wasn't entirely forthcoming with the information that he provided to them. According to what I read, it appears that the man died of natural causes but it's unclear if Linda's boyfriend was the same person of interest that police identified in 2009. Police claim that they have, quote-unquote, lots of persons of interest and that no one has been eliminated as a person of interest. They further clarified in 2016 that they have at least six persons of interest but no suspects. American Military University started an independent investigation into Linda's murder after being contacted by Linda's nephew in 2023. They've covered Linda's case extensively on their podcast, Break the Case, which we'll link in our show notes. The investigators from the podcast spoke to some local witnesses, a couple who delivered newspapers to Linda on a daily basis. The couple delivered Linda's paper to her house at 3:45 a.m. on the morning of Linda's murder. They threw the paper onto Linda's porch as she requested, and they said they didn't see any other cars in Linda's driveway or around the property when they dropped off the newspaper the couple also said that they didn't see anyone outside Linda's house or walking on the street at that time. There were no lights on in the home and the couple didn't see any sign of a fire or smell smoke when they passed by Linda's home. This is all super strange to me because just 15 minutes later, Linda's neighbor called 911 to report the fire. So was the killer in the house getting ready to set the fire? Had the fire already been started and just hadn't become noticeable to anyone? I truly don't know what to make of these witnesses, but they appear to be credible and seemingly have no reason to lie about anything. The Port Orchard Police Department, Washington Attorney General's Office, and the FBI are all collaborating on the case. The AG's office even received a federal grant from the Department of Justice to use in this investigation. On October 22, 2023, just a few weeks ago, Investigators told the hosts of the podcast that they've received the results of advanced forensic testing. Although they wouldn't share any specific information beyond that, they did say that this new forensic testing generated new leads for them to follow up on. According to the podcast hosts and investigators in the case, Linda's case is open and very active. They all believe that Linda's case can and will be solved. There's a $5,250 reward being offered in the case. If you have any information to share, please contact the tip line at 360-876-1700 or email tips at justiceforlinda.com. That's tips at justice, the number four, linda.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show you can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.